By the way, again, a plug for the discipling electives. I hope one or two of the four weeks you go downstairs. Some of you say, well, I'm grandparents. I don't have kids. You realize more grandparents are discipling kids now than parents in some ways. So when they talk about discipling kids and teens, it's not a bad idea to go out down there and get some updates on how to do your grandkids and great-grandkids and those type. It can be very helpful. So um, just consider doing that. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Since I get parables the first night, I get to do the introduction to parables. So the other three guys can maybe give a different one and see if we really mess you up in three weeks. First question is, why did Jesus speak in parables? And he explains it in Matthew 13, in verses 10 to 17. So we want to make sure why we're looking at parables or what the purpose of parables was. Verse 10, the disciples asked him the question, why do you speak to them in parables? So that's the question, isn't it? And Jesus answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes or hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So Jesus gives two or three reasons in here why he spoke in parables. One of them is pretty clear, to make sure the Jews didn't understand what he was saying. Now, you understand it says in verse 15, it says their heart has grown dull and their ears barely hear. It's because they didn't want to hear what he was saying, number one. They were going to reject him and already were rejecting him. So he was just giving them the desire of their heart. They really didn't want to understand, so he's going to speak in parables by which they won't understand. And you notice in verse 11, in these parables are called the secrets of the kingdom which it wasn't time for Israel to understand. Their rejection, why'd they have to, not have to, but why will they reject the Messiah? What's going to be the benefit of that? The gospel then goes to the Gentiles. So if they don't reject the Messiah, the gospel probably doesn't go to the Gentiles. You notice in verse 14, this also was to fulfill prophecy. It says to fulfill what Isaiah said. So he's fulfilling prophecy by speaking in parables that makes it extremely difficult to understand. You realize when he speaks in these parables, even most of the time his disciples didn't understand. So what would his disciples have to do? What are they saying, Susie? They're saying, what did you mean when you said... So they didn't even get him up front. It just didn't quite compute even with them spiritually. They were difficult to understand. So Jesus had to help them understand... But he's also going to help us understand. Now what's interesting is verse 16. What about us? And here are his disciples. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Do you understand why we should study parables? How many Old Testament saints would have killed for what we can figure out from what Jesus said. And so Jesus is saying, don't ignore these. You get a benefit that Israel won't get till later. We know that. We get to Revelation. And that Old Testament saints prayed for and didn't get to understand. And so we want to see what some of those truths are that he wants them to understand and what's un- us to understand. Now you can go to Luke 15. If you wanted a handout and didn't get the one, they're still sitting up here. So did you have an extra one for him? I have some up here if you want them. So. All right. We're looking at tonight in Luke 15. I remind you first, most of you know this, if I ask you what a parable was, you would say it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning or a spiritual meaning. How are this things not moving? 
They have to jump on it. So an earthly story with a spiritual meaning behind it, it looks like a nice story in and of itself. But there's always more truth behind it. And just to understand, parables were talked about by Jesus to address a specific issue, answer a particular question, or correct wrong thinking. A lot of them deal with one point only. Some deal with one point, but a lot of subpoints. That's kind of what we'll have today, tonight. But usually there's some wrong thinking or some issue that Jesus is going to use this to try to point out to them they've got a problem. Now, I will tell you this. Even though they couldn't understand the parables, most of the time they, they figured out from the parables that there was something wrong with their thinking. They didn't necessarily agree with it. They didn't necessarily understand it. But they understood Jesus was saying, some of your thinking's messed up even if they couldn't figure it out. So we're here in Luke 15 tonight. All right, let's see what happened before he tells the parable. What happens first? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, to hear Jesus. So he's got all these tax collectors and sinners. When it says that, it says these were public sinners. Everybody knew who these guys were. We see them through the New Testament, don't we? When you see prostitutes and those that everybody identified in their society were sinners. So these tax collectors and these sinners were coming to hear Jesus. They identified with his message. But what's the problem? The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. All right? So they're seeing the tax collectors and sinners coming. They're grumbling about this. And here's what they say. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Please remember that phrase. That's an extremely important phrase for this whole deal. Because because of that phrase, because of what they're saying, notice what it says next. So he told them, who's them? The scribes and Pharisees. This is addressed to the scribes and the Pharisees who were grumbling. And he told them this parable, singular. Do you notice that? doesn't say these parables, because most of you know there are three of them in this chapter, aren't there? Or seem to be three of them. There really aren't. There's one parable. There's one parable with two introductory statements that goes with it. So it's all part of the same parable that he's going to tell them based on what their reaction just was to what he's been doing. So you got the basics. All right, so first we have to look at the two introductory statements that he makes that are part of this. So there's some parallels. He told them, verse 3, this this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. So here's the sheep. And you see very quickly some things that are going to be, you have to keep in in mind when you get to the, the actual parable that's here. First of all, sheep are valuable to the shepherd, right? Because there's one loss, what's he do? Even for one, you go find it. You don't let just one go. So they're valuable to the shepherd. Something lost is going to be found. There's going to be some rejoicing or some joy that's part of this somewhere or should be part of this. The statement's going to made, I have found what was lost because in this case the shepherd said come rejoice I found the lost sheep and then at the end he mentions there's something to do with a sinner and there's something to do with repentance so that's the introductory statement if you do Bible study method you understand with parables not every detail is as important as everything else you don't necessarily have to parse every little detail out of it but sometimes the details are important in this case this list is important All right, you got the list? All right, verse 8, second introductory statement. Or what woman, 
having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You see some similarities real fast with the first introductory statement? This now you have a coin. The coin is valuable to the woman. She has ten, but even if she loses one, she goes hunting for it, don't doesn't she? How many of you go hunting for change when it goes falling around? You don't even let a penny go. All right, she's got one coin. Something lost is going to be found. There's going to be some rejoicing or joy that takes part of this. She's going to find what was lost, then a sinner's mentioned, and then repentance is mentioned. Sound like the first list? Okay, remember, these are the introductory statements that Jesus is making to these Pharisees and these scribes for the point that he's going to try to make. Now, let's get to the actual parable, which starts in verse 11. You've had two introductory statements. Now you get to verse 11. And I want you to understand the subtitle of this. If you have an ESV Bible or many Bibles, it'll give you a title of this parable, which is what? A parable of the prodigal son, ignoring the verse that's right under it. What's it say there? And he said there was a man who had two sons. So it's not the prodigal son. And that's why you see in the introduction, or in the bulletin, it says a parable of two sons. That's really what it should be. This is a parable of two sons, not just the prodigal son. He's only one piece of the puzzle that's in here. Now, just remind you of this. I'll give you the... Most of you have read this, so you know what's going to happen. You understand you have two sons. Both are valuable to the father. Both have something connected with being lost. There's going to involve some rejoicing in this. It's going to involve sinners, and it's going to involve repentance. Does that sound familiar from the two introductory statements? All right, so you got these two sons. They both match these qualities, and another one we'll see later. Now, look at verse 12 also. I'm going to remind you of this. Before this parable takes off, both guys are given their inheritance. Anybody understand that? What's it say? He divided his property between them. It's not just the first son got his stuff. The older son also got a double stuff. Remember, the older son would get a double stuffing, like double stuffed Oreos. He'd get double because his job then was to take care of the whole family in place of the father. So the first son's gotten his single stuff, and the second son's gotten his double stuff already before we have the parable. So you have to keep that in mind. Now, the hardest part of some of these parables is you've got to understand some of the cultural background that goes with this, or you miss some of the whole details why Jesus is telling this. The Pharisees and scribes would have a clear understanding of what's going on. They knew exactly what it meant by inheritance. Okay? Or the Jew, if you read the Old Testament, you have an understanding of the Old Testament, of the inheritance. All right, let's start then with, got all the background now. We've got the two introductory statements. We've got what the real subtitle is, and we know what both have when we get this started. So go to verse 11. Let's go to son number one, the younger son. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, let's walk through the younger son. All right? First, his situation. The younger son wants no part of this family and no part of his father. You say, what do you mean? What did he ask for? His inheritance. inheritance, Which means, what's he telling his father? I wish you were dead. No Jewish son would ask for his inheritance early. That would be a complete insult to his father because you're basically telling your father, inheritance comes at death. I wish you were dead. I don't want any part of this family. I don't want any part of you. And then he takes his inheritance. Notice he gets his property divided between them. And a lot of this would be actual property. You understand most of their inheritance was actual property, land. And so later when it says he gathered all he had and took a journey to a far country and there he squandered his property, he had to have also liquidated much of it already. He couldn't carry actual property with him. So he would have to have sold his inheritance already. If you sell your inheritance, you're telling your family, I don't want anything to do with you. Oh, nice kid, huh? By the way, he asked for it and his father gave it to him. Keep that in mind. So that's the situation. I want no part of this family. I want no part of my father. So easy to figure out what his status is. Have we seen this word? The first two introductions, there's something about a sinner between the lost sheep and the lost coin And so his status, and the Jews who hear this would understand this, this guy is a sinner to insult his father like this and insult his family like this. So we've got the steps. Most of you could tell me what his steps were, right? He liquidates his money. He takes what he has left. He goes to a far country. He spends it all in reckless living. Then to take care of himself because a famine comes up, And it's hard to get anything. He had to take a job with Gentiles taking care of pigs. You also know what pigs would be to Jews. And he even would like to eat the pods that the pig have. By the way, did he eat the pods? Please don't tell me. People say, oh, he ate the pods. It doesn't say that. He longed to eat the pods. It didn't say he ate them. And also there's a phrase in verse 16 I want you to see. After he's longed to be fed with the pods of pig ate. And look at this phrase, no one gave him anything. What's kind of the implication of that statement? Should somebody have given him something? Yeah, there should be some, something, should give me something. I should get something here. Now you realize here what he already gotten and spent. But he's still the implication is no one gave him anything implying there should be something being given to him in his mind even though he's not making that statement. But again, keep that phrase in mind for later. So, he has to be saved. He's now to the end of his rope. How do I get out of this situation? How do we get saved? And so what he does is, he figures, I'll work to save my own life. I'll go back to my father, because my father still has the means, and I'll tell my father what? What did he say? I'm no longer your son. Do this to me. Do what? You hire me and I'll work the rest of my life to take care of myself. My father will give me a job so that I can now take care of myself the rest of my life. That's how I'll save myself from this situation. I'll take care of it. But I'll just ask my father, just hire me. Now, Is he sorry? Does he repent in here? Yes or no? Yeah. He has that great speech plan, doesn't he? In verse 17, I'll arise, go to my, or 18, I'll rise, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He's got his whole thing planned, his speech when he gets there planned. He's going to repent. He knows he has to. And But he's going to do this whole deal to try to get 
a job from his father. That's all he's looking for. So he does repent. By the way, I'm going to remind you, he gets his prayer answered before he even gets it out to his father. His prayer was going to be, treat me as one of your hired servants. You'll see later, he never gets that out. What's it say in verse 21? I son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You don't see the second phrase. The father forgave him before he ever got to this point. And has already answered his prayer before he ever prays it. But, that's his solution to his problem. The father has a different solution to his problem. And this is what you have to see in this passage. The father's plan as opposed to his plan. Now, can I remind you of this? As soon as the son told the father, I want you dead, in a Jewish home, that son was dead to the family. Nobody would watch for him. Nobody would check up on him. Nobody would go after him. Nobody would care one bit what he does. He was dead. The whole town, the whole village would do the same thing because this would be a public thing of him selling his inheritance. And so the whole town, he would be dead to everybody in town. They would never take care of him again. They wouldn't even allow him in town anymore. And we don't understand that from our culture. But in their culture, this is the way it would be. So what's the father's plan? The father was watching for him. Because he doesn't see him when he gets to the door. When does he see him? What's it say? A long ways off. He's been watching for him. The father has compassion for him. The father goes to the lost son. But he understands that, right? He runs to the lost son. That's the father's plan. And what does he do? He gives him the best robe. Bring quickly the best robe. This would be the festive garment worn only on three feast days during the year. This was the father's robe. And when anybody in the town had to see this, even though that son was dead to him, they had to respect the robe of the father. They had to acknowledge the robe of the father, not the son. This is not giving respect to the son. This is giving respect to the father by giving him this robe. And by the way, you realize he runs outside and does this publicly this again would be something where it's out in public where everybody can see this because everybody would have known what this kid did to start with. What's he give him secondly? The ring. His signet ring. That ring meant he had authority to do the father's business. Nobody in town would do business with him. But if he had the ring... They had to do business with the father. So it didn't matter who he was. It mattered the ring that he had. And then he does a third thing, which to us is a little weird. What's he do third? Put shoes on his feet. Why do you think he did that? Sort of. Do what? Only slaves were barefooted. Shoes meant you were part of the family. Around the house, you'd have all sorts of slaves. The slaves would be barefooted. The family members would have shoes. And so as soon as he got shoes, that meant the father gave him life as a son. This is now my son. Again. And again, we don't understand that, do we? Shoes, just put shoes on that. In that culture, it was extremely important. That you're not a slave, you're a, I'm not taking him back as a slave, as a hired servant. This is my son. Then what happens? Bring the fattened calf and kill it, let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found, and they begin to celebrate. They have a party for whose honor? 
not the Son. This party is to honor the Father. Remember the two introductory statements? The shepherd had the party because I found the sheep. The woman had the party because I found the coin. The father has the party because I found the son. This is a party to honor the father, not the son. And the fattened calf was one that was always saved for religious feasts. And by the way, what did the father want to do in verse 23? Let us kill the fat, eat, bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us do what? Eat. What were the Pharisees grumbling about at the beginning? Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. The father says, I want to eat with my son that I found. Interesting, isn't it? That's the younger son. Well, we got a second son, then, don't we? A man had two sons. Remember, Jesus is trying to make a point to the scribes and the Pharisees about what they grumbled to him about. So, second son, 25 to 32. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has, re- he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So, second son. What's the situation? He wants no part of his family and no part of his father. You're going, what? Who was the party for that he refused to go into? His father. This was a party to honor his father. And by not going in, he's saying, I want no part of your party. I want no part of you. In fact, when he says later, you didn't give me a calf to celebrate, who do you want to celebrate with? His friends, not his family. I really want no part of this family. And I really want no part of this father. That's interesting, isn't it? So what's his status as the Jews hear this? Sinner. You're going to realize in here he insults his father twice. One, by refusing to go to his father's the party that was honoring his father for finding his son. That's one insult. The second insult will be later when he accuses him of favoritism because he says in verse 30, you killed the fattened calf for him. Was that true or false? That's false. He killed the fattened calf to honor what he did in finding the son. The third insult was the, son, the second son is now the lord of the manor. You understand he'd been given the double inheritance, and he's basically in charge, even though the father's still around. This is also his area. And the biggest and the big thing in Jewish culture, in Middle Eastern culture, is hospitality, isn't it? You've all read that. You read it in the Old Testament. How many times you had, so had to show hospitality? He refuses to go to this. By the way, who would be at the party? The whole town, everybody. Not just the family, he would invite the whole town. He refuses to go to the party and show hospitality as the lord of the manor. That would be unforgivable. He does a third thing. He says in verse 30, This son of yours has devoured your property with prostitutes. Question, how does he know? Nobody would have known because nobody would have checked up on this kid. 
In fact, it doesn't tell us he did that. It tells us back in verse 13, he squandered his property in reckless living. It doesn't say he was with prostitutes. The second son is making up a story that should get the first son killed. Because under Mosaic law, if you squandered your inheritance on prostitutes, you should be stoned. So he's telling a story that should get his younger brother killed. Well, he's not a sinner, is he? Nah, pretty clear that he is a sinner. We know the steps that he followed. He comes in from the field. He hears the party. He asks a servant, hey, what's going on about it? He gets ticked off. He refuses to come in. Everybody got that story, right? But what about salvation? Does he need to be saved from his life? Nope. Not in his mind. In his mind, he's already righteous. Verse 25, he's been out in the field working. Verse 25, verse 29, he answers his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. By the way, his father just commanded him something and he wouldn't do it. Isn't that interesting? I'm righteous. Remember the rich young ruler? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, here's three of the commands. You should do this. And what did the young ruler say? I've done all that for my youth. I've kept all the commandments. Really? I haven't done any sin. That's exactly what the older son is saying here. I've never disobeyed your commands. I've been righteous in all that I do. In fact, the verse in verse, the word in verse 29 says, I have served you is really the word for slave. I have slaved for you. Remember, the younger son basically came back to the slave. He had no shoes. Now, the older son said, I've been slaving for you for years. Everything I've done for you, I've really been slaving for you. I'm already righteous. I deserve everything I have gotten. I've gotten all of it from my hard work. Realize what he's saying? Where did he get all of it? He got his inheritance. He got his double inheritance. He didn't get all of this from his work. But in his mind, it was all his effort that got him what he had. Interesting, he says a phrase down in verse 29. You never gave me a young goat. No one ever gave me anything. We hear that phrase before? The younger son was implied the same thing. No one gave him anything. And the older son saying, you never gave me anything, not even a goat which I deserved because I was so good and righteous and obeyed your commands all these years, but you gave it to the sinner which was my younger brother, not to the righteous, which was me. You realize the younger son lived for what he could get from the father and took it and ran. What did the older son live for? What he could get from the father that he could use for himself. Isn't it interesting they're both pretty similar? So, the first son repented. How about the second son? Why doesn't he repent? He doesn't need to. I've not done anything wrong. I don't have to repent. I'm worthy. I don't need any repentance. Look back at verse 7. Remember the end of the first introductory part of the parable? There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And again, who's Jesus talking to? Who's this parable to? The scribes and the Pharisees who are upset with the, what he's been doing. So now you've kind of figured out who the second son represents, haven't you? And why he's taking the tack that he does. I don't need to repent. Is he angry at his younger brother? Is he angry at the sinner? Who's he really angry at? He's angry at the father. 
His anger is all at the father who is doing things that he thinks are wrong. He compares his life to his younger brother's life and says, I come out ahead. I'm much more righteous than he ever was. And yet you don't even give me anything. And again, we're back to the father gave him a double shot of inheritance. So you know he's not saying correctly what he has. He doesn't want anything given to anybody else. Why not? Because if you give the fattened calf to my brother, what's that mean? You give him part of what I should have. Remember, he, the son, the younger son got his and went and sold it. Everything else was double portion for the older son. And now you're taking from me and giving it to him. Technically, it was still the father's, even though he gave it, as long as the father was alive. But the older son says, if you give to somebody else instead of me, that takes away from me. We ever think that way? Interesting. We do the same thing. We think because if God gives somebody else, it kind of takes away from my ability. We forget God's unlimited in the resources. It doesn't take away anything from me to give something to somebody else. But when you're self-righteous and you think you're worthy, you don't think that's a problem. You also remember the first two introductions had something to do with joy and rejoicing. With the first son, it ends with a joyous celebration. With the second son, what isn't there any of? There's no joy at all. Has he had joy in his work? I've been slaving for you. Has he had joy in what his father gave him? You never gave me a calf. Gave you everything else. Does he have joy in his brother who came back? There is absolutely no joy at all in the second son or anything to do with the second son. When there's supposed to be joy, when sinners are being dealt with. That was Jesus' point. The father has a different solution. The father here has a different plan. His plan was, I don't need to be saved. I don't need to change. I don't need to repent. So what was the father's plan? We've got to go back to this. Father's plan starts in verse 28. They're having the party. He's angry, refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. What does that phrase mean? His father came out and entreated him. To what? To do what? Okay, he leaves the party and goes, finds his lost son. And he says, come into the party. I want to eat with you. That's what he's telling him. He goes to the lost son and says, I want you to come to my party so that we can eat together. Remember the phrase at the beginning? They're grumbling because Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. So here's the father saying, come on in, let's eat. He also reminds him of this. You are my chosen one. I gave you the double portion. Everything I have is yours. You are mine. But there's still something you're not doing. Now, by the way, who does the second son represent? Scribes and the Pharisees who were of what nationality? Who were God's chosen people. If you go all the way through the Old Testament, they're always saying that. God won't do anything to us. We're his chosen ones. We're his. He'll do the other nations. He'll never do anything bad to us because we're his. And there is truth in that statement, correct? They were his. But unless the older son humbled himself and went to the party, he wouldn't get what comes with it. Even if he was the father's, he was chosen to get the double portion He needed to do what was, and you're in verse 32, it was fitting. This is the appropriate way that this situation should be handled. And if you're paying attention, you'll do what is fitting and come to the party and rejoice and let me eat with you. 
Does second son come to the party? Nah, he misses the whole point. Now, I do want to remind you of this. If you're one of the scribes and Pharisees and you're hearing this parable, you're going to have some interesting personal reactions to this story. To son number one, what do you think they would think about son number one? As good righteous Jews listening to this, what should happen to son number one? You never forgive him. You never accept him. You never allow him back in the house, never allow him back in the village again. He is dead to you, and you never take him back. Because sinners don't deserve to ever be taken back into the family. And so they sit here and and hear this story and say, no way. There's no way. There's no way this village would ever allow this to happen and have him come back. Well, how about son number two? What do you think they would think about him? No. Same thing. He insults the father twice, once in public, by not coming to the party. Now again, they don't understand their rep- representing the second son. You understand? Remember I told you about that in parables? They would kind of understand the story and say it was a problem, but they wouldn't see themselves in it. But in their culture, they would hear about that second son, and they would think, you should never even talk to that second son. How can he not show hospitality at that party? How can he insult the father that way? At the most, he'd be disinherited. At the least, you just ignore him. So maybe he didn't do anything like the first son and use an inheritance with Gentiles and lose it to Gentiles. So at the least, you just ignore him. Don't do anything for him. But at the most, you might disinherit him too. This son doesn't deserve anything from the father. Well, how about the father? What would they think about him? This is no father. No father would ever take these two sons back in the Jewish culture. And no father would ever run in public to a son who wanted him dead. It was totally undignified for a Jewish father to ever run in public. He would never do it. Wow, what a great parable, isn't it? That he's telling these guys, and we just look at it, he's just talking about this prodigal son. No, he's not at all. He's talking about something totally different. And these Jews would have seen this parable, and they would have said, you're wacky on all three counts, Jesus. None of these guys match up. And really, Jesus did it all the time. Remember the parable? I don't know, they been doing the parable of Good Samaritan. Was that on our list that was there? So I can't talk about that. But to have a Samaritan be the hero of the story, that's a bad idea in Jewish culture. You wouldn't do that. But Jesus loves to do this kind of stuff. So he uses three people in a way that the third son somewhat going to get what he deserved because he never comes to the party, But or the second son. But the other two? Now you got all the details. What's the point? I don't know. And they didn't know. The point, we can figure out the point. And the point has to do with this phrase. Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. Remember, that was the whole thing they were upset with. And Jesus told his disciples, at least later, if he'd have told the other people, they wouldn't understand it. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I've just given you a picture with these sinners and tax collectors coming and eating with me, I've been giving you a picture of the Father. And I'm going to give you a parable that gives you a picture of what the Father's really like. And here's the first point, guys. It's worse than you think. This is all about grace. Performance means nothing. Because the second son, why was he righteous? In his mind, I've performed everything. I've slaved for you for years. I've never disobeyed for you. 
And if that's all where Jesus would have left it, he would have been considered righteous in everybody's minds. But Jesus added the other part just to remind them this second son was really worse than the first son. But the idea that they all had was, if I've done everything I should, I should get in. And the second son should have had it all made, but he doesn't. The first son gets the party. The first son gets the celebration. The first son gets the fattened calf. And the second son loses out on all of it. And so Jesus' first point is, you guys don't even understand. This thing with sinners is all about grace. Performance means nothing. Because by performance, what the first son deserve? Never to be allowed back again. He didn't deserve the father's robe. He didn't deserve the signet ring. And he didn't deserve the shoes put on his feet that all showed you respect this guy because you respect the father. All of which the second son didn't get. So that's the first point. Second point is this. It's also all about the Father's glory. They thought it was about their glory, as the scribes and Pharisees. It's all about us. And again, we don't understand this party being for the Father unless you understand the culture behind this. But the Father was to celebrate the one who did all the work, the one who found the Son, the one who gave his Son life, the one who resurrected his Son, basically. And so the son, the Father was the one to be honored, to be celebrated. And so the reminder is here, guys, this is all about the Father's glory, not about your glory, not about your being the chosen. You understand the answers to prayer in this parable are really wacky in our minds. His first prayer is, give me my inheritance, because I don't want any part of this family. Wouldn't you think the father would say, I'm not honoring that request? But what does the father do? Gives it all to him. Why? He understands that's what's going to bring him to himself. When he spends it all and has nothing, because the father knew what he was going to do with it, he wouldn't have been asking for it if he didn't want to go blow it somewhere. He's a younger son with not a brain in his head. And so he understands this eventually is going to bring him around somewhere. His second prayer is going to be, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Is that a good request? If you're thinking for the son, would that be a good request? That the father should have done that to him? Teach that boy a lesson. Let's let him work for himself for a number of years, right? What's the father do? Gives him all this stuff back. He lost all his stuff to Gentiles. And the father gives him a robe, a ring, shoes, helps him, lets him come to this party and be part of the celebration. He completely takes care of him. Why would you answer his prayer that way? Because we don't understand how God works. That brought more glory to the father than doing it the son's way. The son's way brought glory to the son because he would have then worked for his salvation. The father's way bring glory just to the father. You all know this verse. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You guys can't figure out how the father works, just like you couldn't figure out how Jesus worked, which they couldn't. We can't figure out how God works. Because we think, that's not the way to answer this prayer. And God does it in a way that will bring him glory and not us. But I think there's a third point to this. And again, it has to do with the father. This father is greater than any father you've ever seen in your life. He breaks all the boundaries of what a good Jewish father should be. He doesn't just cut off the sinners and the lost. What does he do? He goes and finds the lost sinners. And not only finds them, he gives them life. And then he sits down and eats with them. And fellowships with them. These rotten sinners who deserve nothing are given everything. What greater father can you ask than that? 
the Jewish father would have done nothing that the father in this parable does. He would have done everything the opposite of this father. And so Jesus is saying, you want to grumble about what I do? I'm doing exactly what the father does. And let me give you an illustration of how the father works. You think they enjoyed this parable? We know they didn't get the point. They should have. Most of the time they understood Jesus was saying something about them if they couldn't figure out what it was. It probably wasn't good. But it's a great reminder for us, isn't it? How did we get saved? We were the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost sons. And it wasn't about us. It wasn't what we did. He left and came and found us and gave us everything to give us life when we could do nothing. And no matter how many good things we do, meant nothing. So our point is, remember this point is something about the secrets of heaven? It's not a secret to us, is it? That it's all about grace and it's all about God and Jesus represents all those things to us. So that's a parable of two sons. Let's pray. Lord, you are a great father to us. And we take that for granted so much. Not reminding ourselves that we have way more than we ever deserve. Because we deserve nothing. And yet you give us everything. What a great account you give us to remind us that we were like the sheep and the coin and even the two sons and the one son who refused to come in at your entreating we pray we don't have anybody here tonight that's like that that won't come in when you call them and when you want to have fellowship with them so we pray we give this message to others that they would know of your grace and your goodness and your greatness as our father we pray this in Jesus name amen